because now you have a burning molten mess of plastic, metal, and a lithium-ion battery that may be on fire, burning at you know several thousand degrees Fahrenheit, falling to the ground at, at great speed. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. Drones are everywhere. They are dropping Hellfire missiles in the Middle East, conducting surveillance operations all over the world, and uh, even flying around suburban neighborhoods in this post-holiday season. As the market for drones has grown, so too has the market for tools to take them down. There's jamming rifles, spoofing software, and hundreds of other solutions. But what is best for the budding anti-drone enthusiast? There's a new report from the Center for the Study of the Drone at Bard College, and it could be of some help. It lists 537 counter-drone systems, what works, what doesn't, and what is just hype. Arthur Holland Michel is the author of that report. He's also the co-director of the Center for the Study of the Drone and the author of the book Eyes in the Sky, The Secret Rise of Gorgon Stare and How It Will Watch Us All. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So what is this report exactly? What what exactly are you covering and what's its history and its genesis? So uh, a couple of years ago, uh, not coincidentally, right around the time that ISIS started strapping bombs to uh, hobby drones and flying them around in Syria and Iraq, uh, sometimes to quite considerable effect, uh, people all over the world started wondering how to shoot these things out of the sky because even though drones can do all sorts of really great things they can also be used to uh, nefarious and malicious ends and as it turns out back then there wasn't a whole lot on the market that could do exactly that anything things that were sort of designed to to counter drones and so suddenly there was this kind of mad rush to acquire this technology and a huge number of companies emerged claiming that they had products uh, that could um, could take down drones through a variety of means i noticed this trend in sort of 2016 2017 and it struck me as being problematic because you had this very untested technology this uh, significant demand and all sorts of unknowns and so i i I set out to write a report sort of covering the technology, uh, how it works, how you can shoot down drones, uh, what the general systems that are out there are, and also uh, including in that a database of products on the market. That report came out in February of 2018, and there were about 230 products uh, that I could find uh, that were specifically uh, marketed as being capable of taking down drones or detecting drones. Um, there was a lot of interest in that report, and so the report that you have in your hands now that we're talking about today is the second edition of that report. Uh, it came out about 18 months after the original first edition, and uh, what it 
shows is that there has been even greater growth uh, in the counter drone sector, but the issues, which I'm sure we'll discuss in a moment, have become all the more uh, all the more complex. And there are so many organizations out there that are interested in detecting and in some cases, yes, bringing drones out of the sky um, that uh, that there's been a huge demand for this uh, this research. Now, when we're talking about drones, uh, what are people looking to counter? Are they we're are we talking about like the small off the shelf drones or are we going up to you know predator reaper yeah so it's um it's a good question because actually in in the case of what one uh, refers to as counter drone or cuas counter unmanned aerial system um that really specifically refers to small drones and why do i say that because um Large drones like Predators and Reapers, the kinds of drones that are used by militaries in war zones for airstrikes and things of that nature, um, they're, I mean, essentially the size of aircraft. And uh, militaries around the globe have spent a 100 years figuring out how to shoot down aircraft. They're actually very good at it. And so the same techniques that you can use for shooting down, say, a fighter jet with surface-to-air missiles, for example, can be applied to military drones. That is why, for example, Iran was able to shoot down a $200 million U.S. Global Hawk surveillance drone last summer using essentially Soviet-era anti-aircraft technology. So that's the large drones. What we're talking about is the small drones, and that is a totally uh, unfamiliar technical challenge. The air defense systems that exist all over the world, even in heavily defended places like Washington, D.C., are simply not designed to detect small, low-flying, slow-flying unmanned aircraft, and they're also not designed to shoot them down. So what we actually have here is a sort of unprecedented uh, technical challenge, which is made all the more pressing by the fact that unlike a $200 million surveillance drone owned by the U.S. military, these small drones that are so hard to detect and shoot down are very easily accessible. Anyone can buy one for a couple of hundred dollars on uh, on Amazon, and that's really the worry. They're proliferating so quickly. You've already touched on it a little bit, but I'm wondering if you can dig just a little bit more. What are the qualities of these small drones that make that have created a market that has exploded where you have 537 different possible solutions. So there, there are a couple of elements there. Um, one is that um, you cannot address it, as I mentioned, with, with sort of traditional anti-aircraft measures. There was an incident, I think, in 2015 that really brought this into relief when a uh, an individual who had had a bit too much to drink uh, was flying a drone near the White House, and he actually crashed it into the White House lawns. Now, uh, an aircraft, uh, you know, a large aircraft would get nowhere near the White House. I mean, there was that gyrocopter that that postal worker flew, um, uh, or in, uh, I think near the Capitol, uh, but. You know, it's sort of an exception that's also kind of hard to detect. But this drone got literally inside the White House grounds and was undetected by any of the defensive systems that the White House had. Um, 
There is also the fact that there have been a ton of incidents like that, and that has in part driven this demand, where you uh, see headlines all the time of, you know, drone uh, flying over sensitive military sites, for example. There was uh, a couple of years ago a host of mysterious drone flights over a U.S. Navy submarine base uh, that is a highly protected facility in Washington uh, state. There was obviously the uh, the case of Gatwick Airport in December 2018 when a single drone, it appears, was able to disrupt and, and for, the, for the most part completely shut down air traffic at Gatwick Airport for more than 30 hours. Every time there is an incident like that, Security agencies around the world, not to mention the security agency that was affected by that very incident, goes online and types in how to counter drones. And then they find a whole list of companies that are advertising products to do exactly that. They're getting pitched by these companies all the time. And in many cases, they are acquiring uh, these these products, often for a very hefty sum. And, um, and, and so those are sort of the dynamics at play in the market because it is a threat that is here and is present. A lot of these organizations aren't willing to uh, to wait. You know, I mean, you're in a busy international airport and a Gatwick style incident could happen to you tomorrow. So you're just going to take the chance and not install a counter drone system or are you actually going to um, sort of take matters into your own hands and, and do so. Uh, those are the, the dynamics, as I said, at, at, at play in the in the market space right now. So how much of this stuff actually works? Well, it's a, it's a kind of hard uh, question to answer in, in broad strokes. One generalization that is easy to stand by because everybody in the industry and in the security sector will say it is that nothing works perfectly and no single system is going to be effective against all drone types in all environments under all conditions. Every single system has drawbacks as well as benefits compared to other systems. Um, that is simply the, the, the fact of the matter at the moment. Uh, you know, we, we have all sorts of technical challenges that are, they've been resolved, so to speak. You know, you, you dial up a number on your phone and you know that you'll be reliably connected to the next person. You know, it's not a sort of game of chance. Um, that is a technical challenge that has in a way been resolved. But when it comes to detecting and bringing down drones, it remains an unresolved technical uh, challenge. If you'd like, I can tell you about some of the most popular techniques for uh, for for detecting and and bringing down uh, drones. Um, yes, please. Like, what what are people buying? What seems to be working? So there are two distinct but interconnected pieces to countering drones. You're obviously going to want to shoot a drone down, but there's no way of shooting a drone down if you don't know that it's there in the first place. And so the it all starts with the detection technologies. Um, and there are a variety of ways to detect drones uh, over, in some cases, quite broad areas. One of the most popular is to use a radar. There are radars that are specifically calibrated uh, to 
detect low, small uh, objects like drones. There are also radio frequency detectors. These are essentially systems that detect anything that is emitting the radio frequency signals that drones tend to emit when they are connected by a remote control with their operators. Um, there are cameras that can uh, that can you know detect drones at at fairly uh, uh, long ranges. Um, th those are sort of the the the, the basic you know uh, main elements. Th then there are some slightly more niche options. Um, for example, acoustic sensors. These are essentially microphones that listen to the specific uh, noises that drones uh, emit that um, you know a, a kind of uh, they're, they're very distinctive if you've heard a drone um, it's it's a sound unlike kind of anything else and so you can essentially create a, a, a microphone system that will alert you when it hears that sound um, and it, it matches that to a library of known drone sounds um, so you've detected your drone um, in many cases, also, these products will actually combine different sensors to uh, play off each other's strengths. So maybe a radar is detecting small objects, uh, is good at detecting small objects from a, a great distance away, but it may be detecting a seagull rather than a drone. Well, then you use a long telescopic camera to actually confirm that it is indeed a drone. But let's say you've detected the drone and now you want to do something about it. Well, the most common technique that's available is essentially to jam the communications links that the drone has. So uh, most drones have essentially two sort of signals that they are emitting and receiving. One is a radio link with uh, the person controlling it, and the other is a link with a satellite, a, a navigation link, just like the you know the GPS link on uh, on on your phone. Um, if you sever that link using what's called a signal jammer, you can uh, essentially force the drone to to go home or to to land. These drones, most drones that sort of you can buy, say on Amazon, will not operate. They will refuse to fly if they don't have those uh, links. Uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, there are also things called spoofing systems. Uh, this is essentially like a hack where you take control of the drone by fooling it into thinking that you are its actual controller via its, via its remote control link or fooling it into thinking that it's actually somewhere else by, by giving it false GPS uh, signals. Then you can get a little bit more extreme <laughs> with your shoot down techniques. Um, there are a lot of nets on the market, essentially these nets that shoot out of cannons and ensnare uh, the drone, uh, bringing it down to the ground. Um, there is a lot of interest in using high powered lasers to burn holes in the body of the drone, thus also bringing it out of the sky. Um, there are there are a lot of uh, projectiles, that is to say, ammunition, you know, shotgun shells, small ball grenades that uh, can also be used to to shoot down drones, and some of them that are actually specifically designed for that purpose. 
And, and then there are some sort of more colorful options. Um, you can, and this is, this may seem like a joke, but it's not, uh, you, you can use what's called a collision drone or a sacrificial collision drone. And that is essentially a drone of your own that flies and smashes into the incoming drone, thus bringing it out of the sky. Um, or, and this is kind of like the ultimate, but it's also kind of sci-fi and very expensive and only the Air Force seems to have it and they're still only just testing it. You can use a high-powered microwave. And that is, you know, essentially a high-intensity beam of energy that fries all the electronic circuits on the drone, thus bringing it out of the sky. Those are sort of, that's the overview of the, of the techniques that are on the market. All right. Thank you for listening to War College. We are on with Arthur Holland and Michelle talking about counter drone technology. We will be back in just a minute. Thank you, War College listeners. You are on with Matthew Galt. We are talking to Arthur Hall and Michelle about counter-drone technology. Uh, just before the break, you were kind of giving me the overview of the different popular systems. Um, so, you know, if people Google it or or the picture that's usually displayed uh, when someone's reading a news story about counter-drone technologies, uh, it, it's kind of been a, a cliche in my mind. It's always somebody with this huge, bizarre rifle yeah, uh, that looks like something from a science fiction film. Are these the lasers and the microwave systems no, that you're talking so, about? So those rifle systems are actually the jammers. Um, so a, a, a signal jammer, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, is, is used to uh, disrupt the, the the radio link or the, the GPS link with the drone, um, is essentially it's just an antenna. But it's a very high-powered antenna, and it needs a, a lot of a lot of energy, and so it needs to have a big battery attached. To it, um, well, you know, as, as it happens, you can package that into something that looks and feels and operates kind of like a rifle. The thinking being a that security services personnel are already trained in operating firearms, and so this will feel very natural to them. You're not sort of uh, reinventing the wheel, and also, you know, you're, you're kind of you're kind of marketing in the visual language that they understand and appreciate her and even perhaps attracted to. Um, so, you know, who doesn't like a big rifle looking thing uh, that can buzz drones uh, straight out of them, um, out of the sky. Uh, oftentimes also these are what's called directional jammers, which means that they shoot a beam in one specific direction. Uh, that is to say you have to aim at at the drone and that can minimize some of the collateral effects you are in theory not going to you know uh, mess up the radio links of some other aircraft say operating uh, nearby and you see that image a lot well one because it looks really crazy and cool and kind of sci-fi-esque and two because it actually is the the most sort of popular technique, um, both in terms of the products that are on the market, uh, but also in terms of uh, who, you know, what has been purchased so far. All right. And is there a sense at all of what works and what doesn't? Well, as I, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's kind of a question of matching the, 
the technique to the environment. And that both goes to the detection side, actually being able to spot and identify the drone and on the shooting it down side as well. Um, keep in mind also that it's not just about what works, but it's also about what is appropriate um, because you may have a technology that is really, really good at shooting down drones. Say, for example, a really, really powerful laser. But you're probably not going to want to use that over an NFL game, for example, because now you have a burning molten mess of plastic, metal, and a lithium-ion battery that may be on fire, burning at you know several thousand degrees Fahrenheit, falling to the ground at, at great speed. Um, so, you know, in that situation, you may want something that's more like a spoofing technology so that you can, in theory, take control over the drone and land it safely. Well, what is the problem with that? It's perhaps less uh, of a sure bet because maybe the drone has been hardened against spoofing attacks. Uh, the same kind of calculus also goes for these signal jamming systems. Uh, okay, great. You're able to, you know, uh, block the the drone from receiving GPS signals. Suddenly the drone has no idea where it is. But think about all the things in modern society that rely on GPS, car navigation, uh, people with their smartphones, getting directions on Google Maps, airplanes, and so much else. And so if you're just wildly disrupting GPS links in, say, an airport, you're actually creating a, a hazardous uh, situation. Um, and that is why specifically jammers are actually illegal to use in uh, in most countries around um around the world. Um, so it's not that any one single system, um, you know, is categorically across the board better than any other. Every single system is going to involve uh, trade-offs. So, you know, in a way, the ideal system is a a, a a drone that has a cannon that has a net in it and so it can get close to the intruding drone and you know shoot the drone with the net and then grab the the net through a tether and carry the drone to safety thus avoiding the drone falling on people's heads well, yeah, I mean that's great, but it's also incredibly difficult to do that. Right. I mean, you're going to need a drone with artificial intelligence that's able to target the drone. You know, the net's going to have to catch on properly without, you know, causing the, the intruding drone or both drones to fall to the ground. You know, there are so many variables there um, that maybe you're not going to sort of take a bet on that. Security organizations at the moment, and this I sort of say in summary, are having to deal with those trade offs at the very moment. And it is a very difficult equation to crack. All right. So your report just lists out what exists. You obviously, with 537, you know, there's obviously no time for you to 
test effectiveness of each and every individual solution, correct? Yes, and and actually that there's there's no testing to speak of. A, a lot of these a lot of these systems are very expensive, they're hard to get a hold of. Um, so yes, this is purely based on what is advertised as being available. Is there any sense that any of these are just grifts? Oh, <laughs> Definitely. There are definitely products on the market that, uh, if not being quite pure snake oil, they definitely have a, a, a dose of snake oil to them. Um, you know, it's hard to point to specific, you know, products on the market and say, oh, you know, that particular product with X name is is uh you know is is definitely snake oil because again without doing the testing it's a little hard to uh tell you know you can look at certain systems and uh, have a healthy dose of skepticism about them i mean you know if you have some company that's claiming that it has swarms of artificially intelligent drones that are able to patrol the skies and i'm talking kind of hypothetically here and shoot down in incoming drones again using artificial intelligence and that it's a fail safe system you know things that seem to overpromise like that uh, you know th th they are probably not entirely going to hold up when you actually do test them um you know i think there is perhaps a sense in the market that uh, security agencies because they are in such a rush to acquire these technologies are not always going to have the time to do the due diligence and test a bunch of products on the market they may place orders for systems that you know seem to work in the product demo and they're like okay yeah we'll give it a shot because we're 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 it's it's urgent and we're we're desperate uh there was a case for example that i think illustrates this well where a company by the name of anduril industries uh which is this uh, surveillance and military technology company started by palmer lucky who was formerly the founder of uh, oculus um well this company anduril they they kind of as a bit of an experiment, it seems, developed these collision drones that could autonomously fly up into the sky and knock the in intruding drone out of the sky. And according to one uh, news report, one of the employees took a smartphone video of those initial tests and sent, literally texted that, smart that, that smartphone video to... Uh, a contact at the Pentagon, and the Pentagon placed an order of these systems that were literally at that point still just like an, a lab experiment, um, not for deployment, but for testing. And that, to me, is a great illustration of how security agencies and militaries are, in a way, willing to take a bet on anything that has some chance of working, that is on one hand, how you sort of push forward new innovations, but there are going to be companies that take advantage of that. Um, and then there are, uh, are products that are essentially just, you know, for this is a classic case is signal jammers that 
were originally designed for jamming some other type of system with a signal, say enemy radios, and has just been essentially put into a rifle form factor, and now it's advertised as a drone jammer. Well, it's not really a new product. It hasn't been specifically designed from the ground up for countering drones, and so it might be a little rough around the edges in that regard. Right, you've got a bunch of these old systems sitting in a warehouse that you can't move, repackage it, yeah. sell it as something yeah. else. Yeah. I also found a ton of drone jammers on Alibaba, which I found fascinating. There are a bunch of Chinese companies that um, I guess have been in the the jamming business for quite a long time. You know, jamming is is not a new technology. The uh, militaries and security services use jammers for a long time. They're very popular, for example, for uh, jamming, um, you know, uh, explosives, remotely detonated explosives. Um, and there are a bunch of these companies. And, you know, for $10,000 on Alibaba, you can buy a, a, a drone jammer that looks like it was probably just some other type of jammer that has been repackaged. All right, let's change tracks here just a little bit at the end. Um, so it seems like you have built your career around drones. Mm. Why is this an area of concern for you? <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting story how we I, I got started in, in this space. Around 2010, 2011, I was actually a student uh, doing my undergrad at, uh, at college, um, uh, this college called Bard College in upstate New York, and I just got super interested in drones, sort of on a personal level. It didn't have anything to do with what I was studying. I was a history major, but I, I just felt like this technology was so formidable and mysterious, and it raised all kinds of really tricky and complex questions. And these were questions that people weren't really, really talking about at, at the time, certainly not in, in a sort of serious academic interdisciplinary way. Um, and people were just starting to gain some consciousness of, for example, drone strikes in uh, undeclared uh, war zones like Pakistan and, and Somalia and, and Yemen. And then there was also all this talk about how drones were going to be used domestically uh, you know, in, in, in civilian airspace and no one really knew how that was going to work and how you were going to stop these things from either crashing into each other or crashing into other aircraft or from invading absolutely everybody's privacy. And I thought, wow, these are going to be some questions that are going to take some pondering. And so I, as, uh, as a bit of an experiment, me and uh, uh, another student at the time, we launched what then became the Center for the Study of the Drone. Um, and by the time we graduated from Bard, um, you know, having set up a bit of a, a blog to you know, report on some of our, our research and ponderings and doing a speaker series, there was enough interest in our work and in the topic that we were like, hey, let's let's run with it. And so um, and so we did. And that uh, that was in May of 2013. So it's now what is that? six and a half years uh, that, that we've been doing this and the topic has only become more complex and more vast and I'm looking at all sorts of things that I couldn't have even dreamed of when I got into this for example counter drone technology or the fact that there aren't just aerial drones there are drones that you know operate like unmanned boats or unmanned submarines or unmanned ground vehicles and they also raise all sorts of interesting questions so in a way, there's still quite a lot of mileage to be to be got out of all 
all this. And then it raises all questions about artificial intelligence sort of looking into the future. It seems like it's only going to get more complex. And where does Gorgon Stare fit into all of this? So when I started researching uh, drones, I mean, you know, there there are so many, uh, shall we say, frightening technologies that you come across, drones that are called the Predator or the Reaper, Hellfire missiles, all the talk about drone swarms. But there was one particular technology, uh, Gorgon Stare, that um, for some reason just stuck with me more than any other. What is Gorgon Stare? Gorgon Stare is essentially a gigantic camera that has not megapixels, but gigapixels. Uh, so it is orders of magnitude bigger uh, than, say, a you know a professional camera that's used for I don't know, say, sports photography or or the 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 12 megapixel camera on your phone. As a result of having all these pixels, a camera like Gorgon Stare is able to watch whole city-sized areas at once, tracking thousands of people and vehicles uh, simultaneously. It was used in a very secretive set of operations that were almost entirely shrouded in secrecy. And I thought there has to be some backstory there that's fascinating. And as it turns out, there was, and I ended up writing a book about the technology, uh, which is the book that you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, uh, Eyes in the Sky. Um, it's a technology called wide area motion imagery in the technical sense. And, um, and the, the sort of, the, the, the final chapter, if you will, figuratively speaking of the story is that it's, it's going to be used domestically. In fact, the city of Baltimore just announced that it is going to do a six month, uh, aerial surveillance program with this very technology, um, this summer to try and track down violent crime, uh, in the city, raising all sorts of really difficult ethical and legal questions that remain unanswered. It sounds to me a lot like we are uh, we're in store for a little bit of what London has, but from the sky instead of from the streets. Yeah, absolutely. And in a way, uh, this technology is um, perhaps more formidable because it creates one single unified view of the entire city or the whole area that's surveilled, which in many cases is the, is the size of the whole city. So the system in Baltimore is going to be able to watch 90% of the city of Baltimore. And once you find a vehicle, say, that is of interest, you can just track it wherever it goes, as long as the aircraft is um, is, is is flying. Um, this was There's a fascinating backstory to the technology um, where it was actually inspired by a movie I'm sure many of uh, your listeners have uh, seen a movie called Enemy of the State from 1998 with Will Smith and Gene Hackman. This is sort of, it's a pretty good movie. It's a thriller about this rogue government agency, you know, chasing Will Smith because he has something that they want. And they have this crazy aerial surveillance satellite that at the time was completely fictional. But... Uh, a government engineer was watching that movie uh, in 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 the late 90s and was so inspired he was like hey we should actually build something like that and then went back and, and did exactly that and then the CIA sort of adopted the program and it ultimately was deployed to Iraq to Iraq and Afghanistan for tracking down people who were planting improvised explosive devices and 
more broadly uh, hunting down these networks of uh, of insurgents. And it continues to be in use um, today. It seems to be very, very effective and successful. And so one only one can only imagine what it could achieve over an American city. Yeah, it's uh, increasing. Uh, it repeatedly uh, terrifies me how often um, it seems people, smart people, were reading cyberpunk books or yeah. or or watching you know cyberpunkish thrillers like like Enemy of the State and thinking like oh you know what that's a good idea like we should yeah. we should do that and uh, now here we are. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. They they watch movies too, and you know they will take a good idea from wherever they can they can get it. And um, you know, in some cases, the, there have been instances of of the Pentagon even enlisting uh, sort of the creative types from Hollywood and and you know from the sci-fi realm to directly give them ideas. Um, the the Marine Corps for a couple of years now has been directly hiring sci-fi writers to come up with just wild futuristic visions of what you know marine war fighting will look like in 2050 and the idea is that they will sort of build some of that into r&d and planning and doctrine um so it you know it's, it's very much a phenomenon that that should come as a surprise to uh to nobody so which which sort of casts any sci-fi movie that you watch that has potentially dangerous technologies in it in a new light because you're like, huh, I wonder who else might be watching this movie. Yeah. I think, uh, one of the, one of these that really strikes me, uh, is Larry Niven who advised the Reagan administration on, on nuclear policy. Uh, mm-hmm. and is also a very famous sci-fi writer and I believe now is doing work for department of Homeland security. Uh, yeah. In a similar vein. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, we live in a strange world. Um, but that is, I think, that will cover it. That's all the time we have for at the moment. Arthur Hall and Michelle, thank you so much for coming on to War College and talking to us about the study and also the book Eyes in the Sky: The Secret Rise of Gorgon Stare and how it will watch us all. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's been my pleasure. That's it for this week, War College listeners. Thank you for tuning in. War College is myself, Matthew Galt, and Kevin O'Dell. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. I know that a lot has been going on in the past few weeks, especially in the Middle East, uh, and that there's a lot for us to talk about, but we want to do it right. Uh, And we have a really good guest lined up that's going to help us do that and talk about an aspect of that conflict that I think is getting ignored. Uh, But... We're saving that for next week. I do also want to tell you that I've sat down and recorded an episode about Metal Gear Solid 2. Coming soon.